see that procession take place, I ask you to uh, turn to a familiar passage that uh, would have been, for those who were, were here when I was in ministry here, was my last series of sermons, and it was from 2 Corinthians. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Now when I heard when there was a commissioning service, and uh, this service had a specific uh, uh, focus as well for uh, the sending off, I knew Nate was preparing a message for this, so I was had something else in mind, and then when I heard this was taking place, I had to scurry and try to come up with something else, and um, this kept on floating to the top. Uh, it's not that I seriously fell back on a bunch of sermons that you guys have already heard. Uh, this, this kept on floating. I just couldn't sink it. Uh, I kept on coming up with, with different passages and every, in the last couple of days, everything just seemed to just kind of be separated and just be on its own from this. And so we're looking at this uh, passage of chapter 5 of this book, uh, 2 Corinthian, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his second letter, as we see it in, and have it here in the Bible. And we'll look at actually reading all verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 21. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us an opportunity to come and worship you. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to coming to worship you with others, part of our family, others who have come in today. We thank you for allowing us to be able to focus entirely upon you this, this time and space that you've given to us, that your word tells us is very sacred to you. You blessed it and made it holy. You separated it from all other days. And Lord, your call to us is that by remembering it, we do that very thing. We consecrate it and separate it from all other days of the week. Because this is not uh, the weekend. This is really the beginning of the week for us. And this is a place where we gather our eyes, our thoughts, our hearts, individually and corporately together with people whom you have called us to be a part of this family. You've called us to be a part of this community of faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll be honored and glorified by our time together with you, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will allow us to feel your presence in a major and powerful way as we think about what it is to be followers of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But, we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the, word to himself, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the reason why I picked this, I hope you can tell, is toward the end in verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. And this is a, a message that I not only wanted to focus on those who are heading out to Kenya, but also applicable to all of you as this scripture and this passage is. Although it is, it really, as we looked at the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, we realized that the focus was Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. And we are not apostles, so we can't take that to be ourselves. We don't have the authority, as Paul does as an apostle. But all of us are called to be ambassadors for Christ. And so we need to look again at what this means to be an ambassador for Christ and what's the criteria and how, how do we go about seeing that, being able to call ourselves ambassadors for Christ, and then also see the effects and the, uh, the warning against in this book about what kind of resistance we may get by being ambassadors for Christ. So we're going to be looking at two other passages in this book and, and a couple others as we unfold this, what it is to be an ambassador for Christ. Notice that there, to be an ambassador for Christ means that, well, you guys know what ambassadors are. An ambassador is a representative for another king, another nation. And that's who we represent. Either we have a representative uh, from our, our, our country to go to other nations to represent the President and the United States. Now this is something that we need to make sure that as we go out into the world, and as you who are going forward to Kenya, that we are not ambassadors for the United States. We need to make sure that we are not proposing that other people 
become Christians like we are Christians. That was the problem that missionaries used to make when uh, they used to go out into other countries, and they wanted them to look like us as followers of Christ. They wanted them to change their customs, change their clothing, change their way of, of their culture, and that's not what I hope you guys are going to do in Kenya, <laughs> is to go and change who they are, but give them an understanding in their culture who Christ is and how Christ can be contextualized in that very nation. And not only there, but as they look out into the world. And so there are churches that you are going to and, and, and uh, that have this in place and in mind as they're going, as they're going out into their country. And we, we see that, uh, and I've heard that the numbers of Christians growing in Africa are just exponential. And uh, the way our country is going, I'm, it may not be far down the road that Kenya and, the, and the, the country of Africa will be sending missionaries to America so that we understand who Christ is, so that we understand what's, what it is to be the church of Christ, to be citizens of another kingdom and be followers of another king. And this is what it is to be an ambassador. We are to speak for this king, as it says here, which I think is quite humbling and quite amazing that God wants us to speak for him. As it says here, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, verse 20, God making his appeal through us. What a humbling and a profound blessing and privilege it is that we are representatives of the gospel for Christ, of Christ. He says this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are, we are ambassadors. We are people who prepare the way for Christ. We introduce people to Christ. We introduce people to the Bible, which speaks about Christ, who perfectly represents the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we see in the Scriptures. Christ is that perfect revelation, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that there is no one better exemplifies that. He completes and is the final revelation of God, from God, of who God is, and what the kingdom of God looks like, and what the gospel is. And so, the ambassadors set the, pray, the place, set the stage, set the platform, prepare people to meet Christ, to come to understand who he is, come to understand and introduce them to him. And that's what we're called to do. But to become that, something has to change. We need to change. We can't be ambassadors for Christ unless something changes. And that's us, that's me, that's you. And as it says here, he says this. Therefore, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. 
We can't be the same as we used to. There needs to be a transformation take place in our hearts so that we may understand totally when we confess what we are confessing and what are we pointing people to. Do we understand what it is to be a follower of Christ? In a world, even in Kenya, even in Africa, around the world, there are people who are giving another gospel, who are saying different things. And so we need to make sure, and certainly we know that our, our uh, electronic means of communication and entertainment is inundated, and our bookstores are inundated with other stuff that will take our eyes off of the gospel, another gospel. So as ambassadors of Christ, we need to understand when Christ comes into our life, what happens to us? What is that experience? What transaction took place in history that would give us that opportunity? And again, Paul gives that to the Corinthians in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus took on our sin, never sinned, but took on our sin so that we may be imputed, his, we may get his righteousness, imputation, credited to us, his perfection, his guiltless life, his perfect living, his perfect obedience to the Father, his perfect death on the cross has all been credited to us. It's not ours, it's his, but it's on our account. And that's the transaction that took place. That's the transformation that needs to take place in our life. And until that happens, we may go anywhere in the world and profess something, but it may not be the Christ of the Bible. And so we need to make sure if we go to our neighbors, we go to our schools, we go to our jobs, that we understand what we, when we talk to them about Jesus, what the Bible teaches us a Christian looks like and what has had to happen in their life. And he says it again in um, verse 16. I'm sorry, yes, uh, verse 16. For now on, therefore, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We notice that here, that Paul says that there was a time in my life and a time in your life, if you're followers of Christ, that you did not know Christ like you know him now. You would have explained Jesus to other people as I know how I would have explained him to other people very unbiblically. I would have given them the Jesus that I had in my heart and had in my mind and not what was in the Bible, but what I was taught, the religious context that I had. And so he says here to them that you used to look at Christ this way. Now you can't look at anyone this way. You can't look at the neighbor like you used to. You can't look at your family like you used to. You can't look at the people in the church like you used to. You can't look at anything like you used to because now our eyes are like Christ. Our eyes are different. We're focusing upon 
people. We're focusing on people who need Jesus. Not the needs of their life, though that is a part of ministry. But by feeding them, by healing them, does not necessarily that it makes us Christ-like. You can become a social worker and do that stuff. My daughter has got a social worker degree. You can become a social worker and perform those things and not be Christ-like and not be an ambassador for Christ. So Paul is making sure that they, they see that a change has to take place. And we see that it has to be in the heart. The whole being, the whole person has to change. When we change our desires change. We are now transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul tells us in Romans. We are now changed people. And now we look at people as ministry. And when we look at them as ministry, it changes how we deal with them. Larry Crabb has a book on, on, um, on marriage called The Marriage Builders. And in there is a chapter talking on ministry. The ministry of a husband for his wife and, a, and, and his wife to, I mean, and the, and the wife to the husband. It is no longer this kind of earthly relationship, but a very spiritual, heavenly uh, bound ministry. How can each one serve each other? How can I have a ministry to my wife, which would then change how I react to her and respond to her? Now, I'm not saying that I got it down right yet, folks, but that's what my mindset needs to be, and vice versa. And as I deal with my children, and as we deal with one another, it's our mindset. It's how we look at each other. And this is a world and a community and a kingdom that we are to now live within as we are citizens of the king and reflect that. And so we see this transformation that takes place. So you see how that can be applied to people who are going to go anywhere in the world, but people who are going, going across the street to the world that they live in. Unless this changes, we're not really ambassadors for Christ. We're just doing something that's nice. But really, in the eyes of God, it's very wrong. We turn with me to... Uh, uh, Paul's, uh, sec the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Something else happens to us. Our message is a message that is either accepted or rejected. You've heard, uh, those of you who have heard me speak here before talk about the light of the gospel changes people. And one of my, not one of my professors, but one of the professors at uh, Westminster Seminary, uh, E.J. Young, says in a commentary in the book of Isaiah, he says this, he says, when the light comes, the bugs are attracted to it and the rats scatter. And that's the reaction and the response that the gospel has. And we can see it here as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, notice verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance. 
Notice the different terms that he uses here. The fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're quite, as Charles Barkley used to say years ago in one of the uh, Old Spice, I think, commercials, that we are quite odiferous. We have a fragrance about us. It's not something that we were born with. But it is something now that being transformed, being in Christ, being a new creation, having the Word of God in our heart, having the Word of God in our hands, in our minds, the message that we give is one of a fragrance. Now notice how he contrasts the word here about fragrance. Verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Notice we have an aroma. The fragrance is an aroma. It's a very pleasant word. It's an aroma, as he says here, aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And then he says the opposite. And among those who are perishing, we are the stench or the fragrance of death to, a, to the other of a fragrance from life to life. We have, a, we have a different way about us. And when we bring the gospel to people, people are either going to close up or open up. And it's not how persuasive our argument is. It's not how sweet that we are though we should be, it is the gospel that affects people that way. And so for those of us who are our neighbors and our friends, as you already know, this is how it happens in our lives as we go to our friends and we can talk about lots of other things. But when we disagree with them about some sort of moral fabric, fabric that is now being built within our society, things that were no longer acceptable are now being accepted, and we, you know, certain kind of understanding and, and ethical standards that they, we do in our own lives, and they do in their life, and they talk about it, and, and they ask you your opinion, and you give them, as Peter tells us, the answer for the hope that lies within us, all of us, you can see a change. You can see a change in people. You can see whether they're curious, whether they're hard rock solidly closed, or all of a sudden their heart opens up. And this is, this is the response we're going to get whenever we do that. So that's, that's what it is to be an ambassador for Christ. It is the gospel. Though we as you've heard me say before, we as ambassadors of Christ can be ridiculed and sometimes we deserve the ridicule, like asking for $54 million for a jet. Not just one of his jets, but how many? I think he had four jets. Uh, we have others who are asking for jets and I believe there were a couple people, I didn't, tell, no, I didn't see this, but one of my coworkers who have nothing to do with spirituality whatsoever, they think anyway, I mean they do, but it's in a negative, 
they told me that they, he and another person were arguing about justifying from Scripture why this man should be getting $54 million. I've yet to see that, but he was saying, I can't believe it. He goes, what did that? And I felt bad for you, Jim. This is what, at least I've got some good coworkers. They said, I felt sorry for you, Jim, that, that this is the kind of billboard that is going out there for something that you're so passionate about, which I was very pleased that they addressed it that way. So we are an aroma. We are either the stench of death or the fragrance of, of Christ. That's, that's what happens. That's what... Uh, happens when we proclaim the gospel as the gospel of Christ. Yes, sometimes we are over the top. Sometimes our personality gets in the way. Sometimes we are pressured, as we see in the book of Hebrews as well. I'm, I'm teaching, I'm almost finishing up my, my, uh, my Sunday school class at First Press, and it's, it's a distraction. There's, there's things going on in, in the Hebrew Christian's life and their, and their eyes are drifting away from Jesus. And, and, and it can happen home, it can happen in Kenya, it can happen on your, you're going to be away for a few weeks, or it can happen at any time. Something may take place, and you don't expect it, but all of a sudden we may start questioning the gospel, or questioning our faith, or questioning what God is doing. We'll question the goodness of God. We'll see, we'll see things happen, and we'll wonder what's you know, we may, you may be exposed to things that you've never been exposed before in a very raw way, and it may cause you to wonder, why does God allow this? And so we need to be careful, as you've heard me say here, that our compass is always pointing north, that there are distractions that can come alongside of, and as a compass, just make it, jump all over the place and really take its, its, its pointer off away from, as you and I know, putting a magnet next to it can take away true north. But that's where the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that we, we, we better hold on to the confession. Not only the profession, but the confession of our faith, the very nuts and bolts. These people are going through a very extraordinarily difficult time. And the same thing happens to 1 Peter, the very first series of, of messages I gave here, is, is that Peter is writing to, as a, as a pastorly father, writing to these people who are under great persecution. And nowhere in the book of Hebrews, and nowhere in the book of Peter does he say, you know, folks, I'm really sorry that you're going through this. He doesn't write him as saying, geez, I just, I, you know, I'm praying for you, and I just hope it all goes away. What does Peter do? And what does the writer of Hebrews gets into a doctrinal statement talking about who Jesus is because that is the substance of our confession. That is what's going to keep us focused on true north. When other things come alongside, when magnets are come along and change that compass, you know, family problems, financial problems, problems of the world that we just cannot process looking in the mirror and hating the person that you're looking at. These things can distract us from the gospel. And that's why it is so important to understand what it is, 
have it written out, have the confessions, have the catechisms that the Reformed faith gives us to be able to go back to with proof text in it to point us to the places, what is it that I believe in and why? And that's why the writer of Hebrews writes some really beautiful but very dense, thick stuff about why going back. Why do you want to go back? Why do you want to retreat? Why, do you want to, how, why are you drifting away? You're not considering. You're not focusing. You're not looking upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You're allowing these other things who were being persecuted, losing lands. He says there, you haven't given up to the point of death yet, but you're getting close. So we understand these things may be a distraction. But he says to them, what does he do? He goes all the way back to who Christ is, his prophet, priest, and king. And people may find that boring. They may find that not interesting. They want to be stroked with, it's going to be okay. Yes, it's going to be okay, because Jesus is the priest, the prophet, and the ultimate king. Because he is the ultimate high priest, he understands totally what we're going through. He may not be experiencing exactly what you have experienced, but in every category of his life, every passion of his life, he has been tested and tempted in every way so that he understands us. If we don't have that kind of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds, if we can't find him in here, we are going to be easily drifting away and be distracted. And what we tell people can be very wrong and give the impression that God is not God of the universe, God the creator, Jesus king of the kingdom. But the other kind of reaction we're going to get is found in chapter 10 of this book, of this letter. He says in chapter 10, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul has this ongoing debate with them, and, and uh, he's testifying and giving in a, a defense of his ministry and of his calling to this church that he uh, is so worried about. For though we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When we identify ourselves as ambassadors of Christ, we are now, now in a new warfare. Things just don't all go away. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of this world go away? No. They grow strangely dim in the light of who he is, of his benefits, of what he gives us, himself, his life and his death, 
the resurrection, the ascension into glory, sitting at the right hand of God. And again, literally, you know, God does not have a right hand, but you understand. The place of authority, interceding for us. That is what, why we turn our eyes upon Jesus, because the things of this world won't go away. Now, God may choose to take them away. He may take those away miraculously, but he may choose us to go through them as a sanctification process for us to truly believe who he is. And Satan doesn't want us to do that. Satan wants us to turn our eyes away from him. He wants us to find someone else or something else that we're going to go to rather than glorify God through Jesus. Turn with me, as you know that passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. He says, finally, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is, this is the attire of the soldier of Christ. This is what the ambassador looks like. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, in all circumstances, did I say in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And you notice, it doesn't say deflect them, because the church is good at deflecting arrows. They don't care who it hits, as long as it doesn't hit me. And what, what's the word here that's key? The key word is to extinguish. Those shields in war were with water, to, distinct, to extinguish those fiery arrows that would come. A heavy shield, but yet not to deflect it upon our fellow soldiers, our fellow ambassadors, but to extinguish them. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then, in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Notice this. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And, and notice here, Paul's cry and plea and prayer request. And also for me, that my words may be given to me in, in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now Ephesians is one of the, uh, the prison epistles of Paul. He's in prison. And here he is asking in that circumstance, not for deliverance, but asking for God 
to give him perseverance in all in this circumstance so that he may in prison open his mouth wide and bold now we don't think paul would have a problem he's think you know he's asking to be bold i would say paul is pretty bold already but he's asking for more boldness and so he sees that this is spiritual warfare and folks the spiritual warfare in our nation is happening at a tremendous rate. A tremendous rate. We need revival. We need reformation. We need our churches to fall on their faces and ask God forgiveness and ask God for strength and ask God for a, a, a greater filling of his spirit so that we don't lose who we are. And so you may go to another country and you're going to be exposed to spiritual warfare because you're going there to help and you're going there to evangelize. You're going there to tell people about Jesus. Do you think that Satan is happy about you going? He's not. He's not happy about you coming here. He's not happy about you going across the street. He's not happy about you helping anybody. This is the spiritual warfare that ambassadors of Christ have to deal with. But as Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant of the schemes and the devices of the evil one. And I don't want you to be ignorant of it either. Because I find myself sometimes forgetting that now the world that we live in. And it's not that this world didn't have, as we read from Paul in the very first century, that life was a warfare for him. But for us in America, we were so used to that we can't get our hands wrapped around that churches, society, culture, morality is all disintegrating right in our face. And so we need to be these ambassadors. So I encourage those who are going to read these passages to understand that you are ambassadors for Christ. And for every day that you're there, you need to be with one another, encourage each other, but also that you understand that you have a king who is with you and that will never forsake you, where you cannot lose your salvation, there you know that God is on the throne, that you know that he is sovereign over all things, these are the things that we bathe ourselves in as we go out for this short-term mission, as we come back home, as those of us who live every day going out, and, and you will come back to that too, every day of our lives, we need to keep our eyes focused upon Jesus. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the transaction that took place in heaven Thank you at the cross you accepted the gift of life from your son for our life. Thank you for this transaction of this righteous life for the life of unrighteousness, our lives. We thank you, Father, as Paul tells us that we see that we are no longer the same. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are new creatures in Christ. 
We were objects of wrath, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, Lord. Your word to us tells us that we were, we were recipients of anger. We were longing for hell. And yet by your grace before all things that we see and cannot see were created, you chose us to be your children. Chose us to be brothers and sisters of your son, Jesus. But now in Christ, we are no longer objects of wrath, but we are now objects of mercy. We are now created for the work that God has given our hands and our hearts to do as we see and have a desire for the furtherance of his kingdom on earth, that we would see people who are dead be made alive spiritually, for people who are blind to be able to see who you are, Jesus, for those who feel that their lives are useless and empty, that they would find that keeping that way without Christ would be an eternal death, but now in life in Christ is eternal life. Father, thank you for these gifts that you've given to us. Thank you that we may arm ourselves with these as we go forward. Lord, thank you for the armor that protects us against the battle of the evil one and his minion. We pray, Father, for the grace of being able to desiring the face of Jesus more than any face in the world. Thank you for giving us a desire for the hope in Jesus more than any hope in anyone else or anything in this world. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us when we did not deserve it. May this be a game changer for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.